Welcome to the Here Be Dragons podcast. My name is Brett Landry, and on this episode, we have a lecture from Dr. Margaret Cottle that was recorded back uh, several months ago on an Integrate night at Christ City Church. Integrate is a ministry that we began uh, a number of years ago, really with a twofold goal. We want to equip Christians how to think theologically about the integration of faith and life, and then secondly, to engage our city in conversation with Christian thought in practice on particular issues. And uh, on this episode, you will hear this lecture from Dr. Margaret Cottle, who taught us about palliative care and medical assistance in dying, or MAID, which is a term that covers uh, physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. It was a wonderfully informative night, a lot of great content covered, and uh, you will hear in the lecture that she talks about a number of resources that she was offering us as a church. Those are posted at herebedragonspodcast.com. That's herebedragonspodcast.com. If you go there and click on the resources tab, you will see her slides from this evening's talk and then uh, the resources that she made available to us in a lecture here called Care Not Killing, The Most Excellent Way. Hope you enjoy. So thank you for coming out on what's starting to almost be a spring evening. It's great that you would come and uh, listen to some of these things. Uh, <clears throat> the, the photograph that's on the screen right now, wait a minute, do I have to do that? Ah, there we go. So the photograph on the screen right now is actually a picture of my hand holding my dad's hand, uh, his 92-year-old hand, about two days before he passed away uh, in his last hospitalization. And he grew up at 45th and Prince Edward and had a paper route in this neighborhood, and my grandfather was a plumber. So in some ways, I've kind of come home from that. So in medical, <clears throat> medical talks, we always give disclaimers. So here's my first disclaimer, and that's my Anne of Green Gables disclaimer, where she said... Um, uh, Hold on, I have to do this one too. Although I say far too much, yet if you only knew how many things I want to say and don't, you'd give me some credit for it. So the part of the reason that I make this disclaimer is because I'm very aware that there is almost no information out there for uh, in the major media. It's all been kind of screened and romanticized. And so I have this desire to give you the information, but you also need to hear the heart stories. So I'm hoping to limit myself on this, but if you had known what I wanted to say and didn't, you'd give me a little credit. My, my other disclaimer, um, sorry, uh, I'll, get, I'll get the hang of this in a minute, is that I do understand that there are those here who may have had some experience already with euthanasia. And um, so what I'm talking about tonight is not directed at you personally. It's a corporate kind of a talk. And if you want to contact me because of private things that where you disagree or you want to hash it out or any of those things, uh, there's my email. You can contact me. And you can also, the email will be at the end too. And people here at Christ City can put you in touch with me. And if there's enough people that are really cranky by the end of this, then they're going to host another little thing where you can have a bear pit with me and take me down. So just, just know that if it sounds like I'm just talking right to you, if it's the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, then pay attention. But if you think I'm just down on you, don't pay attention to that. Okay. Okay. So why should we emphasize foundational Christian truths in a talk that's called Care Not Killing the Most Excellent Way? And um, I, I attend University Chapel, and we have a lot of folks there who are ESL. So when I make slides, I think about that. So these slides are going to be available on the website at your church of the realm, at your church. And so um, I put them up there in case some people who were coming tonight were uh, had ESL issues. So it's not just that I'm trying to read it all, but that's what it's there. Because So the reason that um, I put these basic Christian truths right up there up front is because what we believe profoundly affects the way we live and how we think uh, makes a big difference in and what we know makes a big difference in how we live out our faith and how we um, how we live out the truths of the gospel. Okay, so these are the things that I think we have to have a really deep understanding of who we are, how loved we are, and 
that each life is created with a purpose. And before we can fully understand that the intrinsic value of every human life, that we were made in the image of God, um, and acknowledge the, who the tr- true sovereign is. So if we don't understand these things from a biblical perspective, it's really hard to get this idea that why would it matter? Why do people matter? So the first little bit to this is that we're created by his will. He says, God's the one who says that he bring, he, he's the only one. He, I put to death, I bring to life. <clears throat> he knows us completely. He says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And he knows the span of our years. Uh, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I love this part. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How comforting is that, that he really knows us. And as the old Campus Crusade thing said, he has a purpose for our lives. Uh, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. This is very encouraging things about who we are and how much we're loved and what our purpose is. All these things form the foundation. So, however, I think we need to stop and think about this a while. Because if we're swept along and we approve or participate in practices that the Lord abhors, just because everybody around us feels like that's the right thing, and we're in this tide of our culture that's just carrying us along, then we really haven't accepted this truth, that if our loving God says that something is wrong. Doing it is never going to bring peace, joy, or love into anyone's life. Whether you do it, you approve it, any of those things, it just is not going to be, um, it's not going to bring the true shalom, that peace with order, into anyone's life. No matter how convenient it might sound, no matter how romantic it might sound, no matter how peaceful it might sound, it's a big lie. If God says don't do it, he says it for a reason. He loves us. He doesn't, he doesn't want us. You know, I've got a three-year-old granddaughter. I've got several granddaughters and a grandson on the way. But sometimes when we tell the three-year-old, no, I'm sorry, you can't do that right now, there is, it's, it's not a, oh, Grammy, I know you want my best for me. You know, it's fireworks. But it, I do know what's best for her and in those situations most of the time. And so... I have to be able to put up with that or she's not going to grow up to be a, a decent person and she's not going to be happy. It's not going to bring shalom into her life. Um, I, Stanley Hauerwas, uh, I really like this quotation of his. He says, the value of life is God's value and our commitment to protect it is a form of our worship of God as a good creator and a trustworthy redeemer. Our question is not, when does life begin, or who's in charge of it, or whatever, but who is its true sovereign, okay? The Christian respect for life is, first of all, a statement, not about life, but about God. So, all right, I hope you... um, Hope you brought your thinking caps with you tonight. Here's here's quiz number one. Okay, so uh, medical aid in dying is the term used to cover both euthanasia and assisted suicide in Canada. True or false? Hold on. It's not. Oh, wait a minute. I was trying to get the true. Okay, I probably gave away my next one. Okay, so euthanasia or pushing the syringe, as people call it, giving a lethal injection, and assisted suicide, which is writing the prescription and handing it to someone or some other means of the person doing it themselves. So which is most commonly done in Canada and in the U.S. states where it's legal? Whoops, sorry. We've got, we have a winner here. Yes. So um, yes, in Canada and Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg, it's mostly euthanasia. And in the U.S. states where it's legal, it's mostly assisted suicide. And the very interesting thing about this is in the places where euthanasia is what happens, where the doctor actually or a nurse practitioner goes and gives a lethal injection and it feels like a medical procedure, 
it's at least 10 times more common than places where people have to take the medication themselves. So, for example, it, we've had legal youth um, assisted suicide in Oregon for over 20 years. And yes, it's gone up a little bit there, but it's gone up from like 0.1% of the deaths to 0.3% of the deaths. But, you know, already in in Belgium and the Netherlands, and we're fast approaching it here in Canada, it's up to about 5 to 7% of all deaths are are um, physician hasten deaths. So one of the things that uh, if you know people in other jurisdictions where it's not yet legal, keeping it to assisted suicide and not having euthanasia does seem to, ha if it's going to come anyway, has a, it's sort of one of those harm reduction things a little bit. Okay, so euthanasia is only legal for terminally ill patients in the last six months of life. True or false? You guys are well... You're, you're well informed here, so that's good. So that's that's false. Um, I'm going to tell you what the Supreme Court of Canada said uh, a little bit later, but it's it's not only for terminally ill patients, and it's not just the last six months of life. So, in the Supreme Court of Canada case Carter v. Canada, the decision made access to euthanasia a charter right. True or false? Okay, this is actually false, but it is a trick question. Because what they actually said, the Supreme Court said, was that if you could find a willing doctor, it wouldn't be illegal once it got everything. But there was nothing in it that said we had to even put it into our own public health system. It could have been like, you know, cosmetic surgery. If you really wanted it, you, somebody can do it for you. It's not illegal. But everybody just went whole hog and said, yes, it's got to be, it's a charter right. And uh, the the malpractice group that represents the vast majority of doctors in Canada just said, yeah, it's a charter right. You have to help, you know, this kind of thing. So it was, it was pushed as something that was just automatically into our medical system, but it, that was not what the Supreme Court actually said. Okay. So... And I really like this. A colleague of mine who is Ian Benson, if you know him, once said um, that rights are an admission that love has failed. And I think this is a very profound statement. He said, if we all followed Philippians 2, 3 to 4, uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. If we did that, we wouldn't need rights because all of you would be looking out for me and I would be a group looking out for you. But, um, you know, the, the problem is <laughs> that, whoops, sorry, uh, we, live, we live in a fallen world and we do need rights. But maybe we should actually be grieving that we need them and that we don't have enough love in the world to go around than boasting about having them. You know, that we should see it as an admission of our fallenness and... Um, part of the sadness of our world rather than something that, woo, we've got rights. Um, anyway, something to think about. Okay, so this is what the actual Supreme Court decision in 2015 said. It said that the person had to have an irremediable condition, and that was not defined. It could be something that just wasn't going to get better. Diabetes would follow un fall under that, some severe forms of arthritis, some types of neurological diseases, all that. It wasn't, you know, the last few days of a cancer diagnosis. The second thing was you had to have intolerable suffering. And it wasn't defined except to say that it was only the patient who could tell you what intolerable suffering was. Okay, and the condition also did not have to be a disease. They, they actually put the words in there, or disability. Okay, and the, the final thing was it was not amenable to a treatment that was acceptable to the individual patient. So one of my friends in Ottawa, Derek Miedema, says, you know, I'm going bald, and it's not going to get any better, and I don't want a hair transplant. And who are you to tell me that being bald is not, you know, not worth doing this for me? You know, I'm the one that's defining whether it's intolerable. I have intolerable suffering. So will you will you support state-sanctioned death for me because I find my baldness uh, an irremediable condition? I find my intolerable suffering while I'm doing this. And so we say, oh, well, that's, that's just kind of crazy. But the, the issue is then um, 
how do we how do we put this into a law? So what they did actually was they said that death needed to be reasonably foreseeable. So I actually met with uh, Jody Wilson Rabo uh, had a group of about twenty of us that she talked to for about two hours. I was actually quite impressed that she had people from both sides and we were talking about it. And we said, well, the doctor said, what is this reasonably foreseeable thing? Because, I mean, everybody here in this room, it is reasonably foreseeable. If you were, if you were, <laughs> seriously, if I don't care how much positive thinking you do, if you were born 200 years ago, you're not thinking anymore, at least in this earth. So, you know, it's reasonably foreseeable that we're all going to go. And the, the lawyers looked very sheepish in the room and they just said, we thought the doctors would know what that meant. Okay? So what it actually means, it's a legal term. So that if I have a gun that I have loaded and I'm shooting it around, it's reasonably foreseeable that somebody's going to get hit. But if I come into your house and you've got a gas leak that nobody knows about, and I flip the switch and the house blows up, that was not reasonably foreseeable. Now, people are just as dead, but one of them, it was reasonably foreseeable, and the other, it wasn't. So they use that kind of legal language in the midst of this uncertain medical thing. Disaster. Um, And then all of it's not defined, loosely interpreted, and the moment it came out, it was challenged in court by people who had chronic conditions who said, you can't tell that my death is reasonably foreseeable and I want to be dead. So the law in 2016, and I will give Minister um, Wilson-Raybo credit, and I think part of it is actually from her First Nations heritage, where she understood that suicide is not a good answer to things, because her own party wanted to have no waiting period that you could ask for it and get it the same day. They wanted children, mature minors, to be able to have it right away. They wanted it to be available for uh, people who had purely psychological or psychiatric suffering, and they wanted it to be available by advance directive, which meant that you could say, if I don't remember your name anymore, I want you to kill me. So this, uh, without people not having consent at the time, not having capacity to consent. So they, what they did was they said, we won't do that now, but five years later, which is coming, we will review this. And so there's a huge lobbying effort to push this. And um, Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children has already put out uh, a news release that they have their protocol prepared for the euthanasia of children there at our flagship hospital in the country. So um, the nurse at school cannot give them a Tylenol, but, you know, we're getting ready to do this. Okay. Um, So what are euthanasia-assisted suicide? What are they not? So (laughs) there's a big debate about this. They called it, it's a euphemism, medical aid in dying. And Dr. Balfourmount, who is the person who brought palliative care to Canada. He actually coined the term palliative care because in Montreal, where he lived, hospice had the connotation of a Salvation Army uh, respite place. And he thought nobody's going to want to go to that because in French it did. So he coined the term palliative care. And um, but and he's, he's just apoplectic about this. He says, I've been helping people, aiding their dying for 40 to 50 years, and I've never killed anyone. You don't have to do that. And so people, and people get, it makes people get mixed up too. At least the Dutch call it medical termination. You know, they're, they're honest about it. It's exactly what it is. So I don't use it, but there was a, uh, I can't remember. Oh, it was the Canadian Physicians for Life, which is not a faith-based group, but they had a, uh, a seminar in their national conference last year, and they could not get continuing medical education credit for their seminar if they talked about euthanasia and assisted suicide. It had to be made or they wouldn't wouldn't accredit it and give the doctors who came credit for attending it. So we're going to use the terms euthanasia and assisted suicide, though, because makes me cranky doing palliative care all these years and just saying it's been hijacked. What I, what I do has been hijacked to mean killing. Um, one of my friends said, who's a palliative care physician, he actually helped Dr. Mount set up the unit in Montreal. Uh, and he said, yeah, we may have to, those of us who refuse to kill may have to find a new term. We may have to give up palliative care. So we were thinking, well, maybe we'll call it palliative care classic. You know, like like Coke Classic. They went back to the thing. And 
And my husband's an ophthalmologist, and he sees a lot of older people, and he'll say, how are you doing today? And they'll say, staying on the green side of the grass, staying on the green side of the grass. So we thought we might also call it, you know, the green side of the grass consulting or something like that. But, but uh, you know, all language matters. Language matters. And it's all been hijacked and romanticized. So... Um, here we go. So other things that it's not, and this is really important that you get this. It's not withholding or withdrawing medical treatments that, oh, that should be R. Oh, bad. Sorry, bad grammar. Um, that are, are useless or futile or burdensome or extraordinary. And that doesn't include, uh, that doesn't include normal feeding. Okay, that's a whole different issue, and that's a 10-minute conversation. But if, if you are have, having a treatment that is no longer helping you and is burdensome to you and you're done with it, then withdrawing that is not the same as giving you a lethal injection. Now, people on the other side don't agree with that. They say, the person's just as dead. And my answer to that is, if I tell you that I ran over a five-year-old boy on my street in front of my house this morning with my car. You tell me what my punishment's going to be. You can't, because if I was driving carefully and not speeding and not on my phone and not drunk and my car was in, I tried to break, my car is in good repair, all that stuff, and I had witnesses who said, oh, he just ran out after the ball and she tried to stop, then I'm not going to be charged. I'm going to feel terrible. He's just as dead, but I'm not going to be charged. And then there's little increments, like if I was texting or drunk or speeding, that's another thing. But if I'm waiting around the corner because I hate the little brat, and when he starts to cross the street, I run him down, that is murder. So he's just as dead. I've done it the same way. But my intent is really important. And this is our entire legal system is built not on motivation. It's built on intent. So when Robert Latimer killed his disabled daughter Tracy in Saskatchewan in the 1990s, he was convicted of murder because he fully admitted that he intended to kill her. It's pretty hard to say you didn't intend to kill a disabled daughter when she's sitting in your truck with the hose from your exhaust hooked up to it. Yes, he did. He said he, he thought he was doing a merciful thing, which a lot of us disagree with. But it wasn't his motivation. It was what was his intent. And our whole legal system is built on that. And our, our basically, as part of our moral system, is what did you really intend? Okay. And it's also not the proper use of large doses of pain-killing medications. I do that all the time. My intent is to help. And unless it's a street drug, you've got pretty good uh, safety zone there, too. Not with fentanyl that's for, ant for elephants, but with the ones that we use, it's good. All right, and it's also not the proper use of sedation. If we have a formal protocol of medications and somebody is really in bad shape within the last few weeks of life, we can do something that's called palliative sedation. It's not terminal sedation, and people don't have to just be sedated and then never wake up again. It can, they can have a rest for a while. Uh, I, I can tell you as a woman who's been in labor twice, I'd have paid a lot of money for a five-minute nap about 25 hours into that first one. And so that's kind of what this does. You know, it, it helps us to, to give people just a break. And sometimes people don't, they have symptoms that are so bad that they're not coming out, not going to come out of it again. But the, the studies show that the lives are not shortened. They've done controlled studies that lives are not shortened if you're doing it in that setting with that protocol. So they say, oh, it's just slow euthanasia. They say, that's not the intent. The intent is to relieve the symptoms. It's not to make sure the patient's dead. So those things are really important. Okay. Um, when I spoke in the Netherlands, I was Dr. John Wyatt was there as well at the conference where I was speaking, and he said, everybody says, oh, it's so compassionate to do this. And he said, think about what the compassion of these practices is really saying. I care so much about you that I'm willing to kill you or provide the means for you to kill yourself. Now, people who are in favor of this would actually would say that's okay as long as you say, end your life instead of kill. I'm not, I'm not making this up. I was on a task force with the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians when the, after the Supreme Court decision came down before the law came, and we were trying to figure out how we were going to respond. And um, we had one face-to-face -face meeting, and there were people from both sides of this. We have one person in our group who is a real pusher. for. He's been on the board for Dying with Dignity and all that. Anyway, 
at this meeting, I said, you know, I don't think there's going to be a lot of doctors who have the stomach for killing their patients. And, oh, you're being kind of reactionary there. You know, this is, you're, you're being, you're not being fair. I said, look, okay, I want to play nice in the sandbox. I'm not trying to be, you know, inflammatory with my language. What am I supposed to say? Well, taking the life or ending the life. Well, okay. Sounds like killing to me, but, you know, that's, if that's going to keep the peace in this so we can keep talking about it, I'll do it. But that's, that's where this language, they're always kind of pushing this like that. Okay, so now I'm going to read you a letter. This is from 2010. It's a letter to the editor at the Canadian Medical Association Journal. And this, the, they had published this report in there that was called Moving On from Euthanasia. And the authors of that report said, it's time to move on from the euthanasia debate. We've settled that, right? It's all done. This is 2010. And stop talking about it. Just move on. This is a good thing. And so this... Um, Dr. Dr. Kevin Hay from Wainwright, Alberta, wrote this, and I, I thought it was fantastic. He said, is it time to move on from the euthanasia debate? Let's also move on from physician-assisted suicide. Rationally, if a society legalizes the killing of sick people, it should use the group that is most efficient, legal, trained, and at times paid to kill, the armed forces. Want to die? Fill out a chit. And the sniper takes you out from 100 yards. No pain? Indeed, you will never even hear the shot. Still in the hospital? Perhaps nerve gas in the oxygen line. Very effective. Some options are a bit messy, and therein lies the rub. The hypocrites want everything all nice and sanitized. The armed forces will kick and scream about killing the population they were sworn to serve. So please, tell me why physicians should do it instead. Isn't that a great letter? So, okay, here's quiz number two. This one's not quite as hard. You can start yelling some things out. Why do people seek or ask for euthanasia and assisted suicide? Oh, I didn't do it. Sorry. Thank you for keeping me on track. Why do people do that? Avoid pain. That's one of them. What else? Fear. No purpose, yep. No hope. Control, yep. Things are unknown. That's a little bit of the fear and feeling like they're out of control. They don't want to burden their families, yep. They want to have what they define as dignity, right? Yep. Anything else? Yeah, the fear, they are afraid, yeah. So it's interesting from all those things, if you actually look at the studies about this, the, the main reasons why people have uh, accessed the, especially in the state of Oregon, for example, where we've had statistics for longer, is they are not able, either not able or the fear of not being able to do the things they're used to doing, not being able to care for themselves physically, uh, fear of being a burden on their families, not being able to do the things that make life enjoyable to them. And these are up in the, the 80 and 90% and wanting to have control. Fear of pain is it, having pain was so low that they had to lump that in with another category of pain or future pain. And it still only got up to about 18%. And it wasn't even necessarily that people had the pain at the time. And they did a study there that showed that of anybody that had symptoms, when they, they asked the families afterward, only that nobody had a symptom of greater than, on a scale of five, of two out of five, of the, all the people that did this. It is definitely about uh, wanting to be in control. However, what's the common denominator of all these things? If you think of all that stuff, what's the common denominator? This is a guess-what-I'm-thinking question, I know. I think it's suffering, that people are afraid of suffering. And it's suffering on so many different levels. Uh, it's, and we'll talk about total pain a little bit later, but it's, and there's all these stories about, um, there's all these stories about tragic stories about how people are suffering and how awful it is and, and all of these things. Um, so let's look at uh, 
one possible tragic story. So what do you see that this man is, what about him can you see? How's he breathing? He's got a respirator on a trach. And what's that thing on his lap, do you think? That's a communicator. And what's he sitting in? Okay, so what do you think the prevailing wisdom would be about this, this man's quality of life? Pretty crappy, everybody would tend to say. Okay, now what do you think? Okay. Does he become more of a person to you now? Where he's got this loving wife and he's happy, he's looking up into her face, you know. What, what, are, we, what are we doing when we're defining things that way? Uh, this, these slides are from one of my colleagues, in uh, a German colleague of mine, and he also talked about this idea of the Kalman gap, which is a really interesting thing showing that quality of life tends to be the difference between reality and expectations. And the interesting thing is people like this gentleman that we had before in the picture who is, uh, uh, has ALS, uh, they tend to have a smaller Kalman gap, so less depression, better quality of life than young business executives. Because, and do you think it's because their, their reality is better? No, it's because their expectations are more realistic. So that is kind of an interesting thing, that, that idea. Okay, now, who knows who these people are? There's seven of them. Take a guess. Yeah, these are the, the children, the Syrian refugee children, who, who died in the fire. Now, can you think of anybody in the entire world who is suffering more right now than their mother. The dad, I think, is still in a coma. With uh, They put him in a drug-induced coma to try to help with his burn healing. If, and if he makes it, um, he will have a lot to deal with. But the mom is still with it. She ran for help and lost all seven of her babies. Here's her picture with her husband. Did anybody suggest that we might give her a lethal injection to help out with that suffering? Was that on the table? No. We just said, this is it's ridiculous. That's not what we do. We have 2,000 people in Halifax show up for the funeral. We come alongside this family. We care for them. We do all of those things. I mean, this, this made me sick to my stomach for days, just thinking about this poor family. And we had lived in Halifax for four years, so it was just pretty close to home. And I've got grandchildren the same age as some of these kids. But nobody thought, oh, let's give, let's give her maid. Let's just help her die, too. That's not part of it. That's not how we become part of the good parts of the human family. So, um, interestingly, this uh, Quaker gentleman, Parker Palmer, I like his little quotation that he says here. He said, violence is what happens when we don't know what else to do with our suffering. Isn't that interesting? And it happens at every level of life, individually, in our families, and on a global scale. And I think that's kind of what's happening. You know, we don't they, we do violence to each other when we don't do that. Um, so, Tuzer Vivant or Not Dead Yet, and is a disability rights group here in Canada and in the U.S. And Amy Hasbrook is a really talented uh, leader of this group. She's a lawyer, trained lawyer, but visually impaired. And she has this, their group has this excellent summary of why euthanasia is problematic. They are definitely not religious, but these are the three things they say. One is it's unnecessary. Everyone has the option to commit suicide or to refuse medical care and to have palliative sedation on demand if you need it. So it's, it's not that we're preventing a suicide if we say this is wrong. We're just not having the state get in there and, and have a whole system for killing its own citizens. Okay? The other thing, the next thing is that it's unnecessary. Uh, oh no, I did that. Sorry. It's, just, it's discriminatory. And people without disabilities receive suicide prevention if they express a wish to die. And people with disabilities are encouraged and, to, um, be, and, and assisted to kill themselves. And many people who are severely disabled are afraid to go to the hospital. And 75% of ER docs can't imagine themselves ever living with a disability. So the number of folks who are disabled who arrive in the emergency room and are assumed to be a do not resuscitate, no matter what their age, is staggering. So they're afraid to go. They're afraid to go. 
Uh, choice is an illusion. Uh, the choice to die can't be free as long as people with disabilities or others don't have the choice about when and how to live. I was in the media quite a bit after the Carter decision, and people would say to me, well, Dr. Cottle, don't be so sure you don't want to have euthanasia. Have you seen the inside of a nursing home? You might want it if you ever had to go there. And I said, well, I have seen the inside of a lot of nursing homes, but I think it's obscene that as Canadians that the, it's a better choice to be dead than to live in a place that we have, uh, uh, we've set up for the people who have served us all their lives. That's an obscenity, you know, that, that, that we would do that. Anyway, safeguards don't work, too. That's just that's another whole deal. Um, that Where the practices are legal, they don't prevent anybody from being wrongly killed. And I've got lots of uh, different examples of that if you're wanting corroboration. Um, this, the euthanasia supporters have this really catchy slogan, my life, my death, my choice, six words. And the average news cycle now, you're allowed seven words. That's what it is, seven words. So they get one free, you know. But this, at any limit on your personal autonomy is a charter violation, state-supported euthanasia, but this is garbage. Nobody lives or dies in isolation. We live in autonomy continuously for the common good. No smoking, no impaired driving. I can't have a nuclear reactor in my backyard. For heaven's sakes, in Vancouver, you cannot smoke outdoors on a public beach because it might affect somebody else. But the fact that we would bring in state-sanctioned killing, oh, well, that's no big deal. That's my autonomy. Stay out of it. We know this is a big lie. People, the, the, the poor folks who die in the downtown east side, whose names we may not even know, their deaths affect us. It affects our whole culture. It affects our heart. It affects how we, how we treat one another. And for, for somebody to say, you have no uh, right to talk about how I die, is just a bunch of garbage. Because it's going to affect how I die. It's going to affect how my grandchildren die. It's really important. We are all interconnected. And we, what one of us does always affects the others. And, you know, environmental activists never stop doing that. You know, heaven help you drink out of a plastic straw. It's going to kill the oceans for the next, you know, millennia. I'm not in favor of plastic straws, but we understand that the individual actions we take make a difference. And, um, that we have a 2,400-year-old Hippocratic heritage of respecting life and doctors not killing. And it's like an old-growth forest. It's super easy to destroy it. We can cut it down, and we have been cutting it down, and impossible to replace. And as Margaret Somerville said, I was talking about this, and she said, yes, we're responsible for our metaphysical environment just as much as we are for our physical environment. I think that's a really good concept. What are we, what metaphysical, what philosophical environment are we passing on to our kids? Um, what story do we want to inhabit? You know, the, if we're Christians, we inhabit the biblical story. So what story do we want to inhabit as Canadians or as global citizens? And will euthanasia help us get there? Um, our, if our laws, our, our laws now affirm that there are some lives that are not worth living and that death may be government approved and administered, you, you can't say that this life is worth living and, and get the government to approve a physician giving a lethal injection. Those things don't match. You have to, at some level, say, no, this life isn't worth living anymore, even if it's the person who, who said it. So what, what do we really have to believe in order to endorse this? We have to believe that there are some lives that are not worth living. Okay? And then you got to say, okay, well, who decides which lives are not worth living and which are? And so people will say, well, I guess it's going to have to be the government at a certain level because we can't just have some individual doing it. So my response is often, so you want the people who bring you the Postal Service and the Canada Revenue Agency deciding whether you live or die, okay? Or the Phoenix pay system, how about that, all right? So, and if it's all based on an individual's subjective experience of suffering, how can there be any reasonable objection? Like Derek Meadabus thing about um, uh, going bald. And how can we decide which deaths we're going to facilitate and which deaths we're going to prevent? Uh, I like this. This is a question that Dr. Will Johnston came up with with our medical students. We have a group of med students that come and have dinner at our home 
been coming for 25 years for dinners on Thursday night, and, and uh, they were saying, yeah, but there's all this stuff about autonomy. He says, then ask them, is there anyone, and I know this is bad grammar, so who would you say no to? So is there anyone to whom you would deny euthanasia? So who would you say no to? So you put the the ball back in their court. And they say, well, I guess somebody who was 20 and had just broken up with her boyfriend and wanted to die, I would say no to that. And then you say, well, on what basis are you doing that? Are you saying that her suffering isn't intolerable and that she, you know, that she doesn't deserve to be treated? How do you, how do you deal with that? How do you quantify the suffering and, and say that this is enough suffering and that's not enough suffering? So what basis are... Who are you to say you can't have it and you can have it? You know, it's a really good question. Who would you say no to? And then you put the ball back in their court. And you, instead of saying, well, I think it would be hard to draw the line. No, it wouldn't. That's all they say. You say, okay, you draw the line for me then. Where would you say no? Okay. So we are refusing to acknowledge that there, there are unintended or intended even uh, negative consequences and unintended victims. And in fact, the, the, the original decision of Carter v. Canada, Dr. Uh, uh, Justice Lynn Smith said, well, yeah, there are going to be some people who will die unnecessarily, but that's just part of the deal. It's a medical procedure, which I disagree with, and uh, we don't let people, we don't say nobody can have a hip replacement just because some people are going to die as a result of it. So that's, that was the thinking. But, you know, we took it very seriously as Canadians when we rejected capital punishment. We just said we're not killing each other. And, in fact, uh, some of the places in Canada, like Ontario, are saying that doctors have to refer for, um, for euthanasia if the patients are asking for it. And, but in Canada, we don't refer for capital punishment. If someone is accused of a capital crime in Texas or someplace that has capital punishment, we will not send that person, extradite that person, until we have a guarantee that they won't face the death penalty. So they understand on a government level that, you know, referral is being complicit, but, oh, no, the doctors aren't supposed to feel that way about sending the person to someone whom they know will do it. That's what's called an effective referral. And there's also no acknowledgement of this blatant double standard. There's suicide prevention for some lives and suicide facilitation for others. So one of the interesting things, right when the law was coming down in June of 20, uh, 2016, we had all those teens up in Attawapiskat who were committing suicide right, left, and center, and they were sending these government teams up there to see if they could figure out how do we stop this. And then they're, they're making the law that says that the, that we can have government-sanctioned ending of lives or killing, whatever you want to call it, medicalized killing of, of other citizens. You know, how schizophrenic is that? Um, and there's a big disparity in resources. A year later, all these programs were set up. They dropped everything, got, made sure everybody got to, to have euthanasia right away. Attawapiskat still didn't have the resources they'd been promised. You know, how sad is this? What does this say about us? Um, Amy Hasbrook... Uh, wrote a really great article about what about my right to cry for help. So if nine out of ten suicide attempts are a cry for help, why is it that I, as a disabled person, get to be successful on my first try? And so she wrote, she designed this cartoon. She can't see, so she had her sister-in-law draw it. And it says, suicide prevention program, and there's steps up to the front door. And then it says, assisted suicide with a wheelchair ramp up the side. Something to think about. And so... Also, if we codify this and we say, yes, there are some lives that aren't worth living, and we say, well, if you're disabled or whatever that's happening to you, then what is that saying to the people who are actually living in wheelchairs now or who have some kind of a disability, who have that same disability? Does that say, well, your life is, uh, your life is not worth living under what we're saying? Um, and what about also um, if euthanasia is what gives a person death with dignity— does that mean that someone who chooses to live life to a natural end, even if there are some limitations, has been living an undignified life by definition? So how do we do that? Um, I have a little bit more to say about dignity as well. But Okay, and then one of the big things, I told you you couldn't get away from my grandchildren. Um, what, what kind of world do we want to leave for our grandchildren? Are we being good stewards of our cultural heritage of respect for life? Now, how are, how are they going to die how are they going to live? We need to think about those things. Um, 
Margaret Somerville, who used to be a professor at McGill, she's back home in Australia now, but I really like this article that she has, and it was legal, legalizing assisted dying would be, a, it's, it's written in Australia where it hasn't, it was legal in one part for a while and they took that away, so it's not legal there yet. Um, but it's a big fight right now. It would be a failure of collective human memory and imagination. I really like this. So it's the memory of how every single time we have said there are some lives that were not worth living in the past, then, you know, I don't know if you know the, the jargon about fail. You know, they'll do fail. Every single one of those got the fail stamp sooner or later, you know. You, you can fill in the blanks wherever you want to. There was a big fail on any time we said there was there were some lives that were not worth living. And it's also a failure of imagination. Isn't there a better way to help people who are desperate or who are at the end of life than just saying, oh, you want to be dead? Hell, we, we can make that happen. You know, that's a failure of imagination. So I really like that idea that we're not thinking about our past and we're not thinking about our future. Um, this lady is, uh, she has passed away now, Cicely Saunders. She's a very interesting person. I got to meet her in Britain one time. She was the founder of modern palliative care. And she was, I think, a nurse first and then heard her back and went back and was a social worker. And nobody was paying attention to her about caring for dying people. So in her 40s, she went back to medical school and then people started paying attention, which is kind of sad. It's a little bit like the Le Petit Prince when the, they, the guy discovered the asteroid and the first time he was wearing a fez and so nobody paid attention. So he bought himself a suit the next year and came back to the meeting as, oh, yes, you've got your asteroid. I see that. So it's a bit like that for Cicely Saunders. Uh, but... She set up St. Christopher's Hospice in London, and uh, just amazing. And this is one of her most famous quotations. She was also a very strong Christian. She says, you matter because you are you, and you matter to the end of your life. We will do all we can, not only to help you die peacefully, but also to live until you die. And her call to care for the dying came one time when she was reading 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. It says, what do you have that you did not receive? and to pass that caring and uh, training along. So she invented this model of total pain. Now, technically, this should be a Venn diagram where all these things overlap, but this is the best my computer skills would get you with a pie chart. So there are, <laughs> there are all these things. If somebody wants to rescue this slide at one point, that's fine, but this is it. Um, so... It's, it's how everything is interrelated. It's not just physical pain. There's social pain that we have in our relationships. There's psychological pain inside us, and there's spiritual pain that we have. Uh, and it's, it's very interesting. These things all come together in caring for patients. Now, does anybody know what a Club Z card is still? You probably have to be a certain age. So it's like the... It was a Zeller's card, like a rewards card, okay? Now, you need to know this a little bit because I'm going to tell you the story of one of our patients in Halifax. I'm going to call her Jen. I've changed some of the details, um, and this was a long time ago. But she had terrible pain. She had a gynecological cancer. She was in her 30s. She had awful pelvic pain, and it took us a long time. We couldn't figure out how to get this under control. Finally, somebody figured out that she believed that she was having the pain because God had cursed her because of what she called her promiscuous lifestyle. And so we talked to her. We got her pastor in. We talked about, you know, that's not the way God works and got all that sorted out. But she still had this little niggly bit of pain, and you could tell something was not quite right with her. So finally I went in and I said, Jen, you know, it seems to me there's still just something there. You know, it's much better than it was. And she said, do you really want to know? Yeah, I really want to know. She said, I'm just worried that when I die, nobody's going to be able to cash in my Club Z points. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I think, well, I'm just going to use the technique I teach my med students. You just ask the question, your club Z points? And she says to me, yes, I've been saving for two years to get a bicycle for my little boy. And I'm just afraid that all those points are going to go to waste when I die. So we don't get to do too many miracles in palliative care, but we took some money out of our, our foundation funds, her club Z points, and he was riding his bicycle up and down the hallway at the hospital the next afternoon. And we got her pain under control with half the amount of medication she'd been on before. So she had total pain. 
<laughs> I have also a, a friend of mine who is a bit of a, a wag about this and said, well, there should be an, another kind of pain called bureaucratic pain. And it's, it's actually true. You know, the number of times that a person has to wait for a result or if you think you might have cancer and you get an MRI and you have to wait two months to get the MRI and six weeks to get the results, I mean, that's bureaucratic pain you shouldn't have to have. Or the fact that you have to go to this doctor and that doctor. When we were med students, we'd admit older people for two or three days, do the workup, they were done and went home. The med students learned really well about how to do the workup and the patients just, it was fine for them. But now, you know, that's too kind. We don't do that. Okay, so this emotional pain or feeling like a burden and feeling useless, these things are not the patient's problem. They're our problem, okay? And this, these are problems for our communities. You are not dignified because of the stuff you do and who you are and all of those things. You are dignified because you're a member of our human family. And if you're not feeling dignity in the care that you're getting, that's our deal. We need to work on that to help you have that dignity. That To me, dignity is not something that can be taken from you. Feeling dignified can but not the dignity. That's something that you have just because you're a child of God. Um, and we are, the, apparently this word, I'll leave this to the, the theologians here, but baptism is what they would do. It's like dying. You put the, you put the cloth down into the dye, and you're just, it's identified with that. You never get that purple stuff out of there after the cloth has been in. And that's, we are baptized into that from the time we're little kids into the, the lie of our society that independence is a virtue. Ladies and gentlemen, independence is not a Christian virtue. Interdependence is a Christian virtue. In fact, uh, I know a church in another in another city that doesn't in the U.S. that doesn't celebrate Independence Day. They celebrate Interdependence Day on the Fourth of July. Good on them. Um, so this is my other thing. It's our it's our privilege to come alongside and to welcome them into this community where they're loved and and valuable simply because they're made in the image of God. And, hear this, it's your duty to be cared for when it's your turn. If everybody said, oh, well, I'll do the caring, I'll do the caring, who's going to be cared for? It's our duty as Christians to be cared for when it's our turn. That's how the, the fragrance of caring, you know, that extravagant caring, like when Mary poured out her precious spikenard, that fragrance goes up. It's extravagant. That's how we love because we've got a God who loves us like that. And, you know, there's nothing more deeply human than to accompany each other in the midst of darkness. Animals don't do this. We get to do it. We get to be like our Father when we do this, like our Savior when we do this. God's no one's debtor. This service is difficult, but there's an incredible richness that's poured into our lives as a result of doing this. It's not available any other way. It's our silver refined seven times in the fire. You will know this if you've ever cared for somebody or done something hard, that this is true. Um, so I've been, I'm a Tolkien fan, so you're going to have to bear with me here. And there's a few quotations from Tolkien that I think are really, and Lewis too for that matter, but uh, that really speak to the heart of this. So, when they're setting out on the quest in the Fellowship of the Rings, uh, Elrond says, you know, you can turn back any time. And Gimli the dwarf says, faithless is he that says farewell when the road darkens. You know. And then Frodo is trying to sneak off at one point because he just doesn't want his friends to have to help him with this ring. He doesn't want that. And he says, but it doesn't seem that I can trust anyone, said Frodo. Sam looked at him unhappily. And then Mary says, it all depends on what you want, put in Mary. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you yourself keep it. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone. And go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told you. We know a good deal about the ring. We are horribly afraid, but we are coming with you or following you like hounds. 
And then probably my favorite part of this is good old Sam. You know, he and Frodo are up at the crack of doom. And, and Frodo is so weighed down, he can't even walk anymore. He's just suffering terribly. And Sam says to him, come, Mr. Frodo, he cried. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. Isn't that what it's all about? You know, we can't always carry it for each other, but we can carry each other. Sorry. I cry at tele- telephone commercials, so don't, don't get too excited. Um, but th- that there's something that is so true about that. You know, and Tolkien saw this kind of, of devotion in World War I when he was a soldier there. Okay. So everybody gets robbed when we take a shortcut. I, this is, somebody would say to me, what's your biggest emotion around the introduction of euthanasia into Canadian medicine? I'd say it's grief. It's a deep grief. Because, um, you know, I'll go to a home where someone's already decided to have euthanasia. And all the things that I have to offer, I don't have joy anymore. We can work on that. How do we bring people together? And someone who's been incredibly independent, you know, stay away. I just want to go while I'm still in control. Yeah, but if you had let the people around you who you have never let care for you before get in there and care for you, you would have had this sweetness that you were loved for more than what you could do. You were loved for who you are. And they would have had that sweetness and that, that pure gold of caring to carry the rest of their lives. That, yeah, it was hard. And I did have to wipe my dad's backside. And I, he was delirious. And he said some weird things. But I was there for him. And nobody can take that away from me. But, no, we're just, you know, we want it all to be sterile. What? What a disaster. How sad is that, that that getting in there when it's really tough like that, like Sam and Frodo did, is taken away from us, and it's taken away from our society. And on top of that, those people are not going to tell their death narrative because they're, they're embarrassed or they don't want people to do that. One of the things that really helps when someone's died, when my mom died, oh, you know, it would almost have been like Christmas because we were all there, but mom died. And so you tell this. When my dad passed away, I had this dream of my mom, from who had died almost 30 years earlier, coming and reaching out her hand to him and saying, you know, come on, let's go have some fun. You know, things like that that you can tell. that You, don't, you keep your mouth shut if you've done uh, euthanasia. You don't want to. And now when you see in the paper, died at home peacefully, surrounded by his friends and family, you don't know whether they threw a party and had euthanasia or whether he just died peacefully. What a ripoff that is to us that we can't comfort each other in the midst of that. What is that doing? Um, so this is my tagline for CBC, that we're resourceful. We learned how to fish in the North Atlantic and farm on the prairies. We can figure out how to help each other. This is not that hard. We just need a few resources. And then as Christians, we've got access to the Holy Spirit. We've got, we've got infinite stores of creativity and imagination to bring this peace with order to every aspect of our living and our dying. And, you know, are we committed to finding ways to bring beauty for ashes and the oil of gladness instead of mourning? You know, is this, is this something that we've got deep in our souls, that this is part of our DNA? Um, and this is going to mean something. It's going to mean that we're going to have to invest time and space and energy uh, in our church families to provide meaningful, sustainable support for people who are lonely, ill, disabled, mentally or physically, and marginalized. And this is not easy. There can be some really obvious reasons why some people are lonely or marginalized. You know, we used to have these fairs that my daughter's school, and they'd say, oh, Dr. Cottle, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up, but I, I know I want to work with people. And I'm thinking, have you met them? <laughs> you know, this is, you can't live with them and you can't live without them. But it's, we have to be, you, you have to have some dedication and you have to have the empowering of the spirit in order to do this. This is about loving well. It's not just about window dressing. So I'm going to um, assail you with some of my poetry. 
Um, I, you may not be able to see this. I will read it to you. I took a poetry class from Malcolm Geit at Regent a couple years ago, and a little aside here is he is a, an absolutely phenomenal speaker, and he's doing the Lang Lectures in uh, April uh, to uh, out at Regent, which are free. Don't miss it. There's three different nights. I'm going to try to go to all three of them, but it's wonderful. And so he's a just a beautiful poet, and we had to write some poetry for him, and we had to take a verse of scripture and write a poem about it, and one of them had to be a sonnet. So the sonnet has a very specific form, and so this was the sonnet I wrote, and I, I, it was the verse from John 10.10. It says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And I had this idea of, you know, this way that this has come in, it's been like this thief that's come in, but like a Trojan horse that we, we thought we were bringing in this great stuff. And it's just this horrible death that's been brought in. So this is my, my thing called love's welcome. No crowbar, knife, or stealthy midnight raid, but welcome guest, this thief, this Trojan horse, false gilded words, illusion overlaid on death, despair, depression, and remorse. Just make your choice, fear croons, and death will free you from your useless life. You have control. No one need glimpse beneath your dignity, your loneliness, your hopeless, aching soul. But love says, come, stay close beneath my wings, where darkness, sorrow, pain, and weeping cease. My life poured out in all its fullness rings death's knell and comforts carol on of peace. O oh, mystery of presence in our fear, Emmanuel, our true home, ever near. So Paul says, this is where the, talk, the title for this talk comes from. The last part of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, And now I will show you the most excellent way. And love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So the most excellent way is not rights, it's not killing, it's not even if people want it. It's caring. And the, the autonomy and the, this right stuff, I just think it's, it's like a plastic trinket that you get in a Cracker Jack box compared to the true refined gold that we get when we follow the Lord Jesus, especially into those places where it's really hard. And as part of a loving community, this isn't a solo deal. You can't do this. They, they couldn't do it in Tolkien. They couldn't do it in Lewis. They couldn't do it in the, in the New Testament or the, or the Old Testament. It's this true refined gold of loving community. And you know, when there's refining, there's fire. There's fire. Stuff gets burned up. People get hurt. But you keep trying. You keep going because that's the kind of God we have. Um, this is what being part of the Christian family is all about caring well for each other, especially when it's difficult, and understanding that we are in a cosmic battle that involves good and evil and has serious consequences. And I really like Gandalf's speech, so we're back to Tolkien. Um, but this has meant a lot to me. I have, I have treasured this for years. And it's, um, if you know the story, Gandalf talks to the, uh, Frodo and Sam have gone to throw the ring into the crack of doom. And they know that Sauron is going to be looking for this ring. So they decide that they're going to go right up to the front door of the bad guy, and they are going to storm it just to try to get his eye off of Frodo and Sam so they've got the tiniest chance that they might be able to be successful. And so he says, um, so Gandalf starts talking to them, and he says to them, Concerning this thing, my lords, you now all know enough for the understanding of our plight and of Sauron's. He's the bad guy, just in case. Uh, if he regains it, that's the ring, your valor is vain and his victory will be swift and complete. So complete that none can see the end of it while this world lasts. If it is destroyed, then he will fall. And his fall will be so low that none can foresee his arising ever again. For he will lose the best part of the strength that was native to him in the beginning. And all that was made or begun with that power will crumble. And he will be maimed forever, becoming a mere spirit of malice that gnaws itself in the shadows, but cannot again grow or take shape. And so a great evil of this world will be destroyed. 
other evils there are that may come. For Sauron himself is but a servant or emissary. Yet it is not our part to muster all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the succor of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. What weather they shall have is not ours to rule. We must walk open-eyed into that trap with courage, but small hope for ourselves. For, my lords, it may well prove we ourselves shall perish utterly in a black battle far from the living lands, so that even if Barad-dur be thrown down, we shall not live to see a new age. But this, I deem, is our duty, and better so than to perish nonetheless, as we surely shall if we sit here, and know as we die that no new age shall be. So, the early Christians were fearless and empowered after Pentecost, and they were characterized as people who turned the world upside down. Maybe it's our turn to start turning it upside down again. So, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. The other image I've had, and this is my last point during Lent, is I've been thinking about Jesus in the garden. And what he asked the disciples to do there was, watch with me. Watch with me. And some of them fell asleep because they were, as Luke says, exhausted by sorrow. But that's what he says to us, watch with me. And who, who is him, the least of these? Those people who are hungry and thirsty and sick and in prison. Watch with me. That's what he's asking you to do. And your church will figure out ways to do it. You will. So that is um, all I have to say from my lecture. And I'm sorry it went so long, but like I said, that's my disclaimer. <laughs>